Support for today's episode of Script Apart comes from We Screenplay. If you've just completed a draft of a script and are wondering what next, well, you need to check out We Screenplay. We Screenplay not only offers amazing free resources, like virtual events where your questions are answered by Hollywood's leading professionals, with incredible 72-hour turnaround, format-specific feedback tailored to your specific goals, and a price that no one else can come close to, We Screenplay coverage is used by thousands of writers in every phase of their careers, from emerging writers still finding their voice all the way to Oscar winners. So if your script is all ready to go, check out one of We Screenplay's labs, where dozens of writers have been repped, optioned, and staffed as a direct result of the real-life industry meetings and hands-on workshops offered by We Screenplay. Don't stay stuck. We Screenplay want to help. Check out We Screenplay by visiting wescreenplay.com or clicking the link in today's show notes. Support for this episode also comes from our friends at Screencraft. Breaking into Hollywood as an aspiring writer can be a confusing, convoluted thing. Fortunately, Screencraft is here to help writers with both the craft of writing and the business of Hollywood. Screencraft has everything for your writing journey, from video lectures starring your favorite writers to hands-on career coaching with their excellent writer development team. These guys offer the best screenwriting competitions designed to help your talent shine, featuring judges that really know their genre, from top literary reps to Oscar-winning screenwriters. Hundreds of past winners and finalists have started their careers with the direct support of Screencraft, Winners have been staffed on shows at Netflix, Amazon, Apple TV+, the list goes on. They've also sold scripts and been hired to write films for the likes of Universal, Lionsgate, Blumhouse and Hulu. So if you're an aspiring writer, what are you waiting for? Don't wait to check out Screencraft today. Visit screencraft.org or click the link in today's show notes. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Script Apart, a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies and TV shows. My name's Al Horner, and today on the show, something sinister simmers beneath the surface of suburbia in a brilliant, festive-themed psychological thriller. Eileen is a tale about pent-up desire, parental neglect, and escaping the shackles of the life expected of us. It's a story that first existed as a novel, launching the literary career of Boston-born author Atessa Moshfag in 2015. Since then, Atessa's career has skyrocketed, with novels like Latvona and the tremendous My Year of Rest and Relaxation, cementing her reputation as one of her generation's most exciting voices. Or as the fantastic Gia Tolentino once described her, easily the most interesting contemporary American writer on the subject of being alive when being alive feels terrible. Across all the intervening years and subsequent success, the character of Eileen, a secretary at a correctional facility for teenage boys in a small American town, has never quite left Atessa's side. And it really shows in the new film adaptation of her story that she wrote with Luke Gerbel, her husband and her screenwriting partner. The movie, directed by William Oldroyd, stars Thomasin McKenzie as Eileen and Anne Hathaway as the older woman, Rebecca, that she becomes enchanted by. The closer they get though, the closer Eileen gets to a dark truth involving one of the young inmates at the prison where she works. On this week's episode, Atessa and Luke take time out of a recent trip to London to break down their screenplay for the film, taking us inside the mind of the film's fascinating Hitchcockian anti-hero. Atessa recounts the parts of herself that she left on the page when she initially wrote the story, while Luke, who's a great author in his own right, unravels the meaning of key scenes as he sees them. 
We also crucially debate whether the festive backdrop of this film, all snow and fairy lights, makes this a Christmas movie. This is a spoiler conversation of course, so please do be sure to check out the movie in cinemas now before tuning in. A huge thanks to Atessa and Luke for being such fantastic guests, and a massive thank you as ever to our Patreon supporters who help make this episode possible. If you like what we do on this show and want to see us continue to grow, you can support us for the price of a single monthly cup of coffee, and in return you'll get all sorts of perks, including ad-free episodes, early access to episodes, and the chance to ask your questions to upcoming guests. The address, in case you're interested, is patreon.com forward slash script apart. Okay, with that all out the way, let's jump in. This is the fantastic Atessa Moshveg and Luke Gerbel discussing the first draft secrets of Eileen. Thanks everyone for tuning in. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demet. So I guess I'll start with the tinseled cupboard elephant in the room because I can feel the debate about to rage, guys. Is Eileen a Christmas movie? Like, it feels like this is destined for a kind of diehard-esque uh, back and forth about whether this constitutes a festive movie or not. I think it's the Christmas movie to end all Christmas movies. <laughs> um, I don't know about you, but like, what, like being at home for the holidays and watching Christmas movies always felt sort of like, oh, sort of shameful horror that my family wasn't the perfect family. And I think Eileen is sort of the antidote to that because her family is so imperfect and the story <laughs> is so not about um, uh, finding community and togetherness, <laughs> but rather <laughs> finding your own way through hell um, to get to a life that you want and finding agency and, um, you know, all of the things that I desperately wanted as a young woman. So, you know, I, it it is a Christmas story. There's some Christmas cheer there's some Christmas parties. <laughs> um, there's a Christmas, some Christmas angel. Vomit. There is. <laughs> there's there are a lot of drinks <laughs> and um, snow. So I think you know this could be a great thing to watch at when you know you've come home from Christmas dinner and you're a little bit like, oh, I cannot stand my mother. <laughs> Maybe this is like the Christmas movie. To celebrate the god of pop fiction. <laughs> the like, vengeful god. The Samuel Jackson's god. You know, it's like, yeah. it's full of good messages. But it's also, you know, I think it, it delivers a lot of the things that you want in a Christmas movie in that um, it's super entertaining. It's, it's suspenseful. And um, at the end, the protagonist has gotten what she wanted. Right? And kill the bad guy. Yeah. 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 Just like happens just, in Elf. Just like <laughs> the best. <laughs> um, well, well, Christmas movie or not, guys, Eileen is such a riveting watch that kind of represents something of a full circle moment for the character and this story. Like, I, I know the novel was in part inspired by Hitchcock movies, hence the character named Rebecca. Yeah. Now it's become a Hitchcockian movie thriller in its own regard. Um, from the moment you wrote the novel, Atessa, and, and from the moment that you first read it, Luke, um, 
Did you both see the, the cinematic potential of the story, the ways in which it might lend itself to the big screen? I want to hear Luke answer that question because he came at it fresh. You know, like I had to build it from the ground up and it was always a novel um, in its construction. But I'm curious what you thought when you read it for the first time. Yeah, I'd say yes. I mean, definitely had all the right cinematic cards. Um, the it would you could get distracted from that by the like eloquence and the brilliance of the first person voice, and never imagined it in a, a film with voiceover. So just being so taken by that first person experience, you could kind of forget that that this could be an objective, you know, utterly captivating suspense thriller that it is. Um, so I guess, yes, definitely. And Hitchcock was, of course, a filmmaker who occasionally would revisit his own stories that he wrote decades before. So, of course, in 1956, he remade 1934's The Man Who Knew Too Much. Mm. I'm always fascinated when storytellers do that because often they kind of remark upon finding themselves kind of approaching that old material in a different way because years have passed and they've grown was that the case for you at all, Atessa? Like when, when you sat down with Luke to write this adaptation, did you find yourself with any new perspective on the character or was it like being reacquainted with an old friend exactly as you remembered them? Mm, I mean, it was pretty exact, to be honest. At least it was in my own mind. A lot of time had passed since I'd written the book and I'd also had this experience of releasing the book and then living with the Eileen as she existed in the minds of readers. So I really wasn't Eileen. I didn't inhabit her mind in the way that I did when I was writing the novel. I could see her more like from Luke's perspective as an objective um, character who was not me. But I think um, because of that, I was able to imagine her moving around in space in a different way. And when we sat down to work on just the story for the screenplay, she came. She came as a, um, a as a character who could really occupy this really boiled down, concentrated narrative. Whereas in the novel, mm -hmm. you know, she takes a lot of time to distract us from the story, to give us backstory, to tell us what she's thinking and feeling, what she's imagining, what she wants. Um, you know scenarios that didn't happen but could have all that kind of stuff and in the in the novel were really there with her just in that present moment so she felt all the more vulnerable to me um in the script i mean you mentioned there how you know you inhabited the character as you wrote like the the destructive relationships with alcohol in the novel you've kind of previously described as being informed by like this five year period in your own life and you know some of the the issues around eating as well you've you've talked about in the past mm -hmm. kind of mirroring things that you've gone through Atessa. people also talk about writing as like a means of holding up a mirror to yourself as you write but from the sounds of things, you do that literally. You, I, I read that you have like a mirror that you sometimes position behind your laptop as a way of kind of getting these little glimpses of yourself that can inform what you're doing on the page. It, talk me through like just how personal an experience it was way back when you were writing this and the, the degree to which you, yeah, you were fusing together with the character to any degree that you were. Well, you've really done your research, Al. <laughs> I don't write in front of a mirror anymore, but I did for a very long time. Um, the, Yeah, I mean, I feel like any 
creative act, especially in storytelling, is almost it's almost impossible for it not to be a reflection of, if not you, your obsessions, you know? I mean, what am I going to write about? The thing that I think about the most, like I could try not to, but it's going to come out anyway. Um, one way or another, it's going to be about me and what's happening in my life. And when I was writing Eileen, I was dealing with, I very much tangibly dealing with um, sort of the person I had become having used certain coping mechanisms like an eating disorder, addictions, um, to get me through hard times. And what I had missed out on learning um, because of those crutches. And so I was thinking about my own immaturity a lot. I was thinking back to my own adolescence where these habits and um, tendencies were sort of born and a time in my life where I was coming into the consciousness of self, really, you know, um, figuring out this is who I am and this is how I'm different from everyone else. And I really wanted to write a character who was having those same sort of feelings. Um, of course, I wasn't going to have her living my incredibly boring life, going to school every day and, you know, like walking home in the snow. She needed to have like a... Uh, of exciting story so that she could have basically like a whole lifetime's experience in being born into her future. And that's really where Rebecca came in, you know? Yeah. So in, in the novel, I think, what's the phrase? I think I think Eileen describes her as my ticket to a new life. Yes. Maybe, Luke, this is a good one as, as someone who was coming fresh to it. Um, maybe, maybe you can answer this. Like, what do those words mean to you? What was it about... Um, who Eileen was before Rebecca turns up and who Rebecca enables her to be? Yeah, that's a really exciting, I mean, a good question. I guess what Otessa was just saying about those addictions and behaviors, uh, I share some of those and coming to it, um, or I had in my past, and coming to the work, there's a certain relatability to the to the thing that underlies the disorders of you know, drinking too much or whatever it is. Um, addictions that I could really relate to um, and that I can see, like I connect to Eileen in all of the ways that she is um, relatably maladaptive or has, you know, like unhealthy responses or um, has too much feeling for her body for her and, and mind for where she's at. Like she's, you know, like operating at way too high of an intensity. And so I see her encountering Rebecca as this like really interesting liminal space that brings up like a lot of questions around queerness that are coming up around the film and uh, that I think are really interesting because it's like, you know, does Rebecca have affection and, and infatuation with Eileen or is Rebecca using Eileen? How does power work in those kind of attractions? Uh, what is Eileen looking for from Rebecca? Is it sexual? Is it sexual and the opportunity to become someone else? I think that immediately upon seeing Rebecca, she sees this sounding board, this mirror of like, how can I become what I'm not that I'm seeing in this person who's carrying something that no one around me has ever carried? Right. And I think that that like immediate attraction 
and that conf- you know possible confusion. I think that question of like, what is this? Is this a sexual attraction? Is this a, a liminal space, an opportunity to become something new? Is like fascinating, you know, especially as as I think a lot of young people find those kind of relationships in their 20s, these kind of like narcissistic twinships or whatever they are, where it's it's like you want to be them, you want to be with them, you want to change who you are. Um, so, yeah. I love like the ambiguity that's intact in the film, like around those questions that you just mentioned. Like often in the translation from page to screen, Hollywood does have a tendency to yank away some of that ambiguity. It also has a tendency to kind of sand down some of the quote-unquote unlikable traits of a character. I believe the um, the rights to the, the novel were first sold like prior to publication, the movie rights. So, and then for a while, this was a project in the hands of other filmmakers. Yes. Did you guys have to battle to retain that ambiguity and, and a lot of the nuance of the of the story? Was was there ever kind of like much much in the way of like a battle to be waged over that to make sure that this version of Eileen that's now coming to the screen was going to be a faithful adaptation. We were so lucky. Well, we were lucky in that there there had been a project in development, um, but then it kind of fell apart, and so I got the the rights back, and we never even looked at what someone else had done. We got really lucky. We sat down with our, we, you know, Will Oldroyd, our director, kind of like showed up like, oh, like he was <laughs> he was like, oh, hey, let's do Eileen. And we're like, oh, my God. And then we all had a, a meeting and it just seemed like this incredible uh, coming together of a shared vision and, and shared sensibilities yes. of like daring and respect and mischief. There was just a yeah, common, yeah. A common sense. I mean, I think we were all just so excited to see a character like Eileen who could be this someone who would we would enjoy watching her break the rules. You know, we would be rooting for her, also a little bit perturbed by her and worried for her and about her. It was just an exciting character and. You know, it's true. When I wrote the book, I, I, I understood completely that the line between platonic and romantic, especially when you're, you know, in your 20s, is very blurry. It can be. I mean, I've definitely like felt like I was in love with my girlfriends and I'm completely um, heterosexual, you know. Um, by the way, I should mention that Luke Goebel is also my husband. Um, we've been married for five years. <clears throat> and so it was interesting to think about the kind of infatuation that you have with a friend like that that's going to completely change your life. Because that is, in a way, what we had with each other when we met. I mean, it was sort of undeniable. Um, but yeah, I mean, to, to get back to your question, I don't think we really had to fight for anything because we were sort of just boots on the ground doing it, just the three of us at the beginning. And then the script was its script. And and it was, it, yeah, I mean, it was COVID. I don't know if that has to do with anything other than... We were hiding in a cave and we nobody were, knew what we were doing. You were being chased by wildfires, right? Yeah. That did yeah. happen. I mean, and we could talk about that, but just, I, I mean, Will was willing to 
not go to a, you know, to the route of getting a studio to pay us. And so we did it, you know, what they call SPAC. Uh, and so we had total control. And by the time we went to Likely Story, they were very user friendly for art, you know, artists wanting to do what artists want to do. And then fifth, fifth season came in and it just really was. It was an independent a magical movie. experience. Yeah. It was an independent film with actors and directors that all wanted to make this movie and no one really you know put their fingers in it love to hear it um so guys let's go through some of the beats from the film um and maybe talk about some of the ways in which there are some subtle departures from the novel there are some some tweaks um the first of which being the kind of like framing device of the novel we begin in the novel with the sort of old eileen looking back right. you're know, reflecting on on this period decades earlier that was something you sort of left behind and we sort of dive straight into the film in this movie adaptation. Can you talk me through that? Yeah, why'd you do that? <laughs> I mean, um, that just seemed like an obvious. It seemed totally crucial to any adaptation of this story that it would not be framed by uh, an older Eileen, but one that was framed by you know, Eileen herself in the moment yeah. so that we could see why and how she responded to her life in in real time. Yeah. I mean, like we said earlier, these are really condensed versions of the characters from the film in a lot of ways. Like, you know, this was inspired in the Hitchcockian sense. Like these are these are grand characters that are distilled. And I think we couldn't have done it that way without voiceover. Um, or at least it would have been that would have been the obvious. And I don't think we could have we didn't want voiceover in this film because we wanted the only person Eileen can talk to to be Rebecca. Like, you know, there's yeah. a lot of silence in Mackenzie's performance because what in the book is so much first person thinking and talking directly to us in the film is all done on the face. Um, and so that kind of silence and that repression and that environment of the 1964 cold New England winter, you know, working class town, that hardness explodes or opens when she meets Rebecca. It's the first person that she can talk to. So if she were talking to us in the beginning, you know, it would lose that that magic. Yeah, the cat's kind of out of the bag if she's already talking to us. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned the setting there. Um this is another of your stories, Atessa, that kind of like it opts for a backdrop that isn't modern. You know, um, my year of rest was set in the year 2000. You know, you've you've visited medieval farmland in your work before. And um, I think it's 1964, I think, is is the, the year of this, mm -hmm. this story. Um, can you talk to me about like the ways in which the time period dovetailed with what Eileen's experiencing, why that felt like a fitting backdrop for this tale that I guess theoretically could have been told in modern day. And um, yeah, the, the kind of Xville setting of this. I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by the environment that you chose to tell this story in. Well, I grew up in a suburb of Boston. When I was growing up, um, my aunt's family lived um, on the shore in Massachusetts. And so, you know, every several weeks we would all get into the car and do this drive out there and for some reason, it was always winter. <laughs> like all of my memories from growing up are winter. And driving through these small towns that, you know, didn't exist until um, 
I saw them. You know what I mean? Like, they're just so out of the way. Um, I was always sort of terrified. Like, this was sort of a horrific landscape of secrets to me. It was totally foreign, yet it looked like it had always been there. And, and I always wanted to know, what are those people doing inside those houses? You know, um, they were they were the big mystery to me. And um, 1964, yes, it's an important year. A lot happened in the United States in 1964. It was an inflection point culturally, politically. Um, you know, women were about to really shift in the way they took up space and um, were respected as human beings and 50% of the population. But in those small New England towns, it was not 1964. <laughs> it was still not 1964 in the 80s, when I was a kid driving through them, I mean, it really looked like the 1950s, you know, and, and still to this day, you drive through and, you know, the, yeah, the cars are different, but the mailbox is still the same, like these like, like pretty little cute colonial houses. Um, it's a sort of timeless, weird, liminal, to use Luke's word, space where you just is anything happening ever? <laughs> and then turn, I mean, obviously, there are there's stuff happening. People are living and dying. People are getting together and breaking up. Um, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. So I really loved 1964 as this like moment on the brink, you know, and that Rebecca represented that, that yes, things are changing out there in the rest of the world. Um, you could have that too, Eileen. Um, and I love that it's just a moment of potential and possibility and also so perfect for a young woman who really wants to get away. I mean, I think that was like maybe the primary feeling I had when I was a teenager was I can't wait to get away from here <laughs> and like start my life. And that's I, I think that's sort of what Eileen and that time that time in that town is about. Yeah. It's a good, it's a good way to say it. like what you were talking about. Is it a Christmas movie? It's a mm -hmm. Christmas movie for a young woman who wants to get away. Yeah, <laughs> can't wait to get out of here. Um, the early scenes involving the dad are so fascinating. Like it, it's a really nuanced situation. The relationship between those two. It's Eileen is part caregiver. She's part kind of prisoner almost mm -hmm. of him. Um, can you talk me through that relationship? And, and and what you guys think um, what you guys think that relationship exacerbates in Eileen's attraction to Rebecca because mm. it's such a kind of demure put down life that she lives with her dad. What do you think, Luke? I think it's a great question. I almost want to hear more about what you what you're thinking. Like, how does her relationship with her dad set her up for the experience she has when she sees Rebecca? Well, for me, the interesting thing about it is the kind of like specter of the sister. So mm -hmm. in, in the film, I don't think we ever see Joan. She's just mentioned in passing no. and she's kind of put on this pedestal and you feel so sorry for Eileen and it really buys your affection for her because she's there doing the hard work, caregiving for her father who's drinking himself into an early grave. For me, it's like a fascinating dynamic, and um, I'd just love to know a bit more about where it came from. And um... well, what you're lighting on is really interesting in terms of 
I think in terms of the mirrors that the book and film create where like what's happening with Joni, we later learn, you know, that dad has transgressed. We can assume that dad has transgressed in some way upon Joni based on the scene where she's driving him to the hospital and he gropes Eileen and calls her by her sister's name, which is then a parallel and a mirror to what's happening with Lee Polk, which gets into whole generations of trauma and abuse that are happening in this film everywhere from war and, you know, physical and emotional abuse to sexual abuse. Um, so all of that, I think, is really fascinating. How does that work with Rebecca? Can I tee that up to you? Sure. Is that the tea That's right the tea. there? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, what the answer to that question for me goes to the scene, and I guess this is the beginning of um, spoiling the movie for whoever's <laughs> listening. But when Eileen goes to, quote unquote, Rebecca's house for a drink on Christmas, Rebecca, there's a moment where Rebecca demonstrates the freedom that she has living all alone in this house by screaming. And I really feel like when Rebecca screams like that, to me, it's like the scream that Eileen wants to let out the entire movie. (laughs) And the screaming that she wants to let out at her dad, who's constantly putting her down. And, um, the way that he puts her down is like this really playful cat and mouse game that is addicting in itself. Like I want to watch them like fuck with each other basically as much as possible whenever they're in the scene together because he's pushing one way, she's pushing back. It's this really interesting dance that's also really sad for both of them. You can see their loneliness and you can see how desperate they are to somehow have an upper hand, which is a bizarre thing to want in a relationship with your daughter and, you know, with your dad. No, I'm in charge. No, I'm in charge. No, no, you're wrong and I'm right. And, um, you know, the thing that's unspoken between them until the very end is that they're both still grieving the loss of Mrs. Dunlap, the mother and, and wife. And, you know, we there, there. It is a movie of mirrors and ghosts, images, or you know, this uh, these people that aren't there anymore, and what we're trying to make up for um, in the wake of that loss. So, I think that Rebecca gives Eileen. I mean, a way. I mean, to say that she gives her a way out is one thing, but to to say that. Rebecca is acknowledging and validating that um, Eileen's life sucks, you know, that when she she literally says in the scene in the bar, like, that's no life for a young lady, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, you need more than that. You can't be you, you can't be filling in for your dead mom for the rest of your life. And literally, she's wearing her clothes. Exactly. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know. And I think it's a it's a judgment on Eileen that Eileen is grateful for because I think without it she might have thought that that was just her her lot in life. Yeah, Rebecca's the only character who treats Eileen as if as if she's not destined to be 
what they all exactly. treat her that she's, going, that she's never going to escape, that she's going to be just like the caretaker for her father and probably then end up like her father in one way or another, drunk or right. stuck or, yeah. Or and, end up like the other secretaries at the prison. It's like, just wait, Eileen, you're going to be just like me one day. Yeah. You know, it's like this, all of these potential destinies that just seem horrible. <laughs> yeah. She's treating her like, of course, you're not going to stay here. Of course, you're not yes. like them. Of course, you're not a secretary. Don't say that. about you know, yeah, yeah. She's, for, for whatever her reasons are, whether she really believes that about Eileen or whether it's just that's what she believes about women or that's what she believes about who knows. I mean, or, or is she that, wants she, Eileen to she, do something for she her. She thinks Eileen should want more. Right. But I, I mean, I think Rebecca really does see something in Eileen. I mean, there, there's arguments to be made that you could like see it both ways. Like Rebecca is this master manipulator right. who sees this young woman and her vulnerability and exa- knows exactly how to seduce her into doing exactly what she wants. Or she's telling the truth and she's like, you know, do you really think you're a normal person, Eileen? You're not. We know she's not. Right. We've seen her be not. Clearly. So we know that she has the potential to bust out. But then it's also her job. Like it is Rebecca her job. Rebecca does She's this a for a living. She's a child psychologist. <laughs> exactly. And Eileen is in delayed adolescence. And right. uh, there's also the Timothy Leary of it all. Because uh, Rebecca studied under Leary, you know, which is something I think we added to the film. But Well, it was always like it was the, always the, 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 uns, the unwritten backstory for Rebecca is that she... You know, was one of the first women in a graduating class to study at Harvard under Leary, who was teaching there at the time, whose ideas were, you know, kind of wild. Right? (laughs) (laughs) It is fascinating, though, that in a film about parental negligence to a degree, you know, you've got that with Eileen's father, you've got that in the Lee Polk component of of the plot. Rebecca is an older woman, and there's a parental element almost. She's teaching Eileen how to be a woman in ways yeah. that she doesn't yet have access to. Um, can you talk to me about how this all marries up in that amazing final scene, which which is a little bit different from the book. Can you talk to me about that final scene on Christmas Day? The, 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 the disguise of it all is really interesting, the way that you kind of, you're, you're expecting this invitation to be kind of a sexual one, and you're you're anticipating this kind of romantic moment between between Rebecca and Eileen, but of course, something else completely different is happening. Talk to me about constructing this version of of this conclusion to the story. Well, this was the this was the hard part, to be totally honest. I mean, what compels Eileen to go along with Rebecca's plan to somehow extract a confession from Mrs. Polk was tricky because we don't have the um, unspoken thoughts of Eileen. We only have the present moment and the scene and the dialogue. And, you know, so there was a lot of debate. There was a lot of, let's try this. No, let's try that. And to be honest, it didn't really all come together until... Anne Hathaway suggested, you know, this one moment of dialogue, which we put at the at the door when Eileen's like, no, I'm leaving, you know, forget this. I thought you liked me. And now you're telling me that I'm here for something else. 
I mean, it still gives me chills, that that sort of betrayal. Um, and the line of dialogue where she's saying, I need you. I need, I need you. I, I need, need you. Right. I need you to help. I need you. Right. And um, how that she buys into that, um, knowing that there's actually maybe a bigger prize at the end. It's bigger than Rebecca. It's her own power. Yeah, and I think that 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 scene, that little that moment, that sequence, that Annie's speech about needing a friend, needing her, um, is like a partner to the thing that I think was not confusing or difficult about writing that scene, which was just the the kernel of how it would hurt for Eileen to go there expecting one thing, and to when she starts saying like, "I'm, yeah, I want to talk about Lee Polk," and she's like, "You do." Right. Like what? And it's just this like devastating blow. Like this has nothing to do with what I thought I was here for. Like where are you taking me? And then it just so rapidly turns into a whole nother movie. And Eileen is just, you know, ruined by it for this moment and then picks herself back up in that moment where, 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 um, and Rebecca says, I need you. And then she's like, all right. I, I know what this. to do. I know what to do. I yeah. mean, it's it's interesting, too, because in that moment, um, Anne Hathaway's character is basically conf- like admitting that she's vulnerable. Right. But Rebecca, but Eileen, sorry, um, doesn't exploit her in the way that she's been taught and shown to exploit vulnerable people. Instead, she takes it on. She takes it on as a responsibility. Okay, I, you're right. I need to show up for you. And I think that's what's so that's that's for me why I love Eileen because she isn't using anyone. Mm-hmm. She's actually the um Christmas angel. She is the Christmas angel. <laughs> She's the one that's really fighting for the truth. Yeah. And isn't hiding from her own truth at the end. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, just to keep bringing it around to that question, like, I do love this as a Christmas movie. Like, it feels like there's this vengeance and this justice and this coming together and this, like, healing and catharsis and love between these characters that isn't phony. Like, it's like, this is like the straight shit. Like, I don't know what God would think about this, but (laughs) but I like it. (laughs) Well, it makes it all the more, there's, there's something more special about the fact that they don't run away together. There's that heartbreaking moment where Eileen is staring out the window for a car to come around the bend that's never going to arrive. Like Rebecca is has left her, and um, Eileen kind of yeah has to kind of emerge from this trauma on her own. And of course, in the novel, we have this coda in which we understand that Eileen went to New York and she renamed herself uh, Lena, I believe it was, and. Um, that's something that you don't get into in in the movie. You just kind of leave it on that that shot, that highway shot of her in a truck hitchhiking, kind of disappearing down a highway. Um, can you talk to me about like yeah the decision here of like where to leave the story and and, and why why not uh, replicate that that coda? That's always the question at the end. You know, how do you want to leave things? How and I think we always wanted to hold on to the the shock of the twist and reveal um, and this sense of like emptiness and possibility, 
rather than saying, let's wrap this story up and let you know that Eileen left and went on her way to have this other kind of life, I think the not knowing but um, seeing her sort of move into the future on this highway, and just the symbolism of that and as an image felt felt much more appropriate. And like a little bit scary. Yes. Like yeah. like we were saying, like, you know, you love Eileen, that she does the right thing and that she's, you know, cares for for Rebecca. But she kind of fucks it up. Well, okay. She she's, like scares she, she her. She also kills then, someone. But two seconds I mean, later, you've got Anne Hathaway like with blood all over, like stuffing pills down, you know, Mrs. Polk's mouth. And it's just like, oh, shit. It's an amazing and scene. And to... To to you know Eileen with the gun right before she shoots her I'm like yeah do it but it's like that part of me that's unhinged that makes me relate to her that's like yeah do it do it do it and then she does it and it's like oh wait that's that's real yeah. so to have her like a few minutes later out on the highway like where's where's Eileen going you know it's kind of nice to know she's not just like sitting in an apartment somewhere. Um, having, you know, calm reflections on her life. It's like it could be, it could go anywhere from yeah. here. Well, that phrase, that unhinged part of me is so fascinating. It reminds me of a quote of yours, Atessa, from a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. um, you described how my writing lets people scrape up against their own depravity, but at the same time, it's very refined. It's like seeing Kate Moss take a shit. <laughs> I really like that quote. And uh, I think it is true, like a lot of your writing, the, the sort of realness of the characters and how unapologetically raw these characters often are. We do have an opportunity to see some of our own depravity in some of the bits of ourselves that we don't, you know, let, let the rest of the world see. What do you think are this story and this character, Eileen, what, what do they let people scrape up against in themselves? Which depraved part of themselves would you say? Hmm. Well, I do think it's slightly different from the novel. I think in the movie, we get to scrape up against, in a way, our selfishness and our desperation to be seen and appreciated and loved, um, and just how far that might take you when you've never felt that ever. And I also think there's... You know, it's scraping up against something extremely uncomfortable for us to look at. And, and that's why it has to happen in a basement, which is the cyclical, cyclical, um, sad and horrific um, abuse of the love of a child. I mean, this is a part of the movie that I don't really think gets spoken about at all, but it is very much about how innocence gets exploited and how desperate we are to be loved and what the sick things that we might do in order to feel that. Anything to add on that, Luke? Just the repulsion in me being like, that some might do. Right. <laughs> no, no, no. Certainly. Not, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's really interesting that people won't talk about the end. You know, they'll talk about that there's a swerve or that there's a this or a reveal. But and it's the same with the the way that the book was responded to is that there's this like 
oh, Eileen as a character is disgusting, but never would anyone mention the real horror. And it's just such a window into our society and our world is that like, you know, the thing that's so horrific, people won't take objection to and be like, oh, let's look at that and shed light on that and yeah. change yeah. that. Untouchable. It's like, we're not going to worry about how we could change. You know, the reaction to the book could be like, yeah, we need to do more to protect children. We need to like look at, because this was a true story, Yeah, the impetus, you know, and this kid, a uh, young man was in prison for life. Like it wasn't like, let's reform laws around children who were abused. It's like that young woman was oh, gross. Oh, she didn't <laughs> take a shower, you know? Like, <laughs> so it's a little bit like... Uh, curious to see how the movie plays because, yeah it's a because mirror no one's talking about that yet yeah. you know it's like they talk about it as a filmic device but they haven't talked about it as a as an issue or a theme so yeah seems like an important conversation to spark um we should wrap up guys but before i do can i ask like what other projects you've got coming up i know that this wasn't like a one and done sort of foray into screenwriting uh, for you, Atessa, like I know that the, the pair of you have other projects in the works. Is yeah. there anything you can tell me about? Well, we we had our previous movie, Causeway, which um, of course, yeah, was uh, really fascinating to work on mm. with Lila Neugebauer and um, Jennifer Lawrence and Brian Tyree Henry starring. And we're working on another project with Will Oldroyd, which is super exciting. Yeah, and um, yeah, so we love Will. Is that another adaptation of a previously existing thing you've written? It's not. It's an original story inspired by a true story. And it takes place right here in uh, the United Kingdom. Yeah, it's the last <laughs> woman to be convicted of witchcraft during World War II. Yeah, a psychic medium. Set at Christmas, I hope. It is a Christmas story. <laughs> yes. Uh, and then we've got um, another we've, we've project. We've got a bunch of other th things in the that pipeline. That we just handed in a draft on. So, yeah. yeah, we've got more coming. Oh, well, I can't wait, guys. And I can't thank you enough for this conversation today. I've had such a blast chatting with you. Same. Same. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Scripts Apart. Thank you so much for tuning in. A reminder that if you want to help the show continue to grow, you can join us on Patreon by visiting patreon.com forward slash script apart or clicking the link in today's show notes. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time.